Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is Day 8. Today we will be reading Book 3, Chapters 1-4 through in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast God's Planning. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find God's Planning with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplanning.org. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So, in these first chapters of Book 3, we follow Augustine to Carthage, his move there and where he will um, continue his studies. And in Carthage, there are a couple things for us to consider. First is, again, the question of love and desire and affection. So, St. Augustine brings this up again, and we're going to consider it anew now and in this new location. It's also here in Carthage that Augustine begins to read the writings of Cicero, and Cicero for St. Augustine evokes a desire for for wisdom and for truth. Cicero we'll talk about a bit in St. Augustine's encounter with him, but there are a set of important readings for St. Augustine or reading his writings because it gets compared to the scriptures later on and helps or hinders his conversion. So I don't want to spoil it, but there we have it. Get ready. Here we go. Okay, so let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Book 3, Chapter 1 I came unto Carthage, where all around me there sang into my ears an entire cauldron of unholy loves. I did not have a love to which I gave myself, yet I loved to love, and out of a deep-seated desire I hated myself for desiring too little. I sought what I might love in love with loving, and I hated safety and a path that was not laid with snares, for within me I was fashioned for that inner food which is you, my God. However, in the midst of that famine I did not hunger, I felt no longing for incorruptible sustenance, not because I was filled with it, but rather, the emptier I was, the more I loathed it. Thus my soul was sick and covered with sores. It miserably cast itself about, desiring to be scraped by the touch of sense objects. Yet if these had not a soul, they would not be objects of love. Thus, to love and to be loved was sweet to me, but even more when I managed to enjoy the body of the person I loved. Therefore, I defiled the spring of friendship with the filth of concupiscence, and I overshadowed its brightness with the hell of lust. Thus foul and unseemly, I, in my swollen vanity, was eager to be refined and elegant. I rushed headlong then into the love in which I longed to be ensnared. My God, my mercy! 
With how much gall did you and your great goodness sprinkle me on account of that sweetness? For I was both beloved and secretly arrived at the chains of enjoyment, and with joy I was fettered with bonds that bring sorrows, so that I might be scourged with the burning hot iron rods of jealousy, suspicions, fears, angers, and quarrels. Chapter 2 Stage plays also carried me away, full of images of my miseries and fuel for my fire. Why is it that man desires to be saddened, beholding sorrowful and tragic things that he himself would, however, by no means suffer? Yet as a spectator, he desires to feel sorrow at them, and this very sorrow is pleasing to him. What is this but a miserable madness? For a man is all the more affected by these actions to the degree he is less free from such affections. However, when he suffers in his own person, it is called misery, but when he suffers with a fellow, it is mercy. Yet what kind of compassion is this that we feel for feigned and theatrical passions? For he who hears of them is not called to relive them, but only to grieve, and he gives greater applause to the actor of these fictions to the degree that he is made to feel grief. And if the calamities experienced by those persons, whether of past times or merely fictional characters, be acted out in such a way that the spectator is not moved to tears, then he departs disgusted and critical. However, if his passions are stirred, he then remains intent upon the show and weeps for joy. Therefore, sorrows too are loved. Surely all men desire joy, but whereas no man likes to be miserable, he is nonetheless pleased to be merciful, which cannot be experienced without sorrow. Indeed, then, is this the only reason for which sorrows may be loved? This also springs from the same vein of friendship? But where does it go? From what source does it flow? Thus it runs into the torrent of pitch that bubbles forth monstrous tides of foul lustfulness, into which it is willfully changed and transformed, freely making itself fall down into corruption from its heavenly clarity. Shall we therefore do away with mercy? By no means. Let sorrows sometimes be loved, but beware of uncleanness, O my soul, under the guardianship of my God, the God of our fathers, who is to be praised and exalted above all forever. Beware of uncleanness. For now I do not lack pity. However, then, in the theaters, I rejoiced with lovers when they wickedly enjoyed one another, even though this was imaginary and only in the play. And when they lost one another, as though I were filled with merciful compassion, I sorrowed with them, yet I had my delight in both. But now I much more pity the person that rejoices in this wickedness than the person who is thought to suffer hardship by failing to attain some pernicious pleasure and the loss of some miserable felicity. Most surely this is the truer sort of mercy, but in it grief does not feel delight. For though he who grieves for the miserable might be commended for his exercise of charity, yet he who is genuinely compassionate will instead wish that there would be nothing for him to feel grief at. For if good will were ill-willed, which it can never be, then he who truly and sincerely commiserates may wish that there might be someone who is miserable so that he might commiserate. Some sorrow may then be allowed, though none loved. For this is your way of acting, O Lord God, who loves souls far more purely than do we, and more incorruptibly has pity on them, without yourself being wounded with sorrowfulness. Who is sufficient for these things? But I, miserable one that I was, then loved to grieve and sought out something to grieve about when, in that misery which was feigned and acted out by another in the show, I felt the greatest attraction and pleasure in that acting that led me to tears. 
Was it surprising that, as unhappy sheep straying from your flock and impatient at your protection, I became infected with a foul disease? And hence I had love of sorrows, not ones that would sink deep into me, for I did not love to suffer what I loved to look upon, but ones that would only lightly scratch the surface when I heard their concocted tales. And like someone who was scraped by poisonous nails, there followed inflamed swelling, decay, and putrefied sore. With such a life was I living, O my God. Chapter 3 And your faithful mercy hovered over me from afar. How great were the iniquities by which I allowed myself to waste away, pursuing a sacrilegious curiosity that, having forsaken you, it might bring me to the treacherous abyss and deceitful service of devils, to whom I sacrificed my evil actions. And in all these things did you scourge me. Indeed, while your solemnities were being celebrated within the walls of your church, I even dared to desire and seek out employment, deserving death for its fruits, for which you scourged me with weighty punishments, though it was nothing in comparison to my faults, O Lord, my exceeding mercy, my God, my refuge from those terrible destroyers, among whom I wandered with a stiff neck, drawing further away from you, loving my own ways, not yours, out of a love for a fugitive freedom. Likewise, my studies, which were judged to be commendable, had as their goal excellence in courts of litigation, all the more praise to the degree that it is craftier. Such is men's blindness, glorying even in their very blindness. And now I was the best pupil in rhetoric school, something I took proud joy in and swelled with arrogance about, though, O Lord, you knew it, far quieter and altogether removed from the subversive deeds of the subverters. For this ill-omened and devilish name was the very badge of their gallantry, among whom I lived, myself feeling a shameless shame that I was not like them. With them I lived and even sometimes took delight in their friendship, though I ever abhorred their deeds, that is, their subvertings, whereby they wantonly persecuted the modesty of strangers, which they disturbed by freely jeering, thereby feeding their own malicious mirth. Nothing could be more akin to the deeds of the devils than were these. What truer name could they go by than subverters? They themselves were subverted and altogether perverted, secretly being derided and seduced by deceiving spirits, who themselves delight in jeering at and deceiving others. Chapter 4 Among such men as these, in that unsettled age of my life, I learned books of eloquence, desiring eminence for the sake of a damnable and vainglorious end, a joy in human vanity. In the ordinary course of study, I came upon a book by a certain Cicero, whose speech nearly all admire, though not so much his heart. This book of his contains an exhortation to philosophy entitled Horstensius. It altered my affections and turned prayers to you, O Lord, giving me new purposes and desires. At once every vain hope became worthless to me, and with a hot-burning desire I longed for immortality and wisdom, and began now to rise upward, so that I might return to you. For not to sharpen my tongue, which I seemed to be purchasing with my mother's allowances, in that my nineteenth year, for my father died two years earlier, not to sharpen my tongue did I make use of that book, nor did it persuade me to love its style, but instead the content that it conveyed. How then did I burn, my God? How did I burn to mount upward from earthly things to you? And I did not know what you would do with me, for with you is wisdom, and the love of wisdom is, in Greek, called philosophy, with which that book inflamed me. 
Some seduce through philosophy, coloring and disguising their own errors under its great, charming, and honorable name. And almost all who in that age and former ones did this are censured in that book and set forth. There, too, he sets forth the wholesome advice of your spirit, which was written by your good and devout servant. See to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And since at that time, as you, O light of my heart, know, I did not know the apostolic scriptures, I was delighted with that exhortation, only so as to be strongly roused, kindled, and inflamed to love, seek, obtain, hold, and embrace not this or that sect, but wisdom itself, wherever it may be. And the only thing that checked my thus enkindled desire was the fact that Christ's name was not found in it. For even with my mother's milk, my tender heart had devoutly drunk in and deeply treasured this name, in accord with your mercy, O Lord, this name of my Savior, your Son. And whatever lacked that name, though it be ever so cultivated, polished, or true, did not take full hold upon me. Alrighty, here we are. A new city, a new venue. It's exciting. It is exciting. So we're in Carthage now, which is not in Tagast or anywhere else. So St. Augustine has come to continue his studies in a new city under new tutelage. So we've moved from sort of infancy, boyhood, early years now to a bit later, and here he is. So Father Gregory, anything to say about Carthage at all, or does it not matter? Yeah, well, people may have heard of Carthage from their study of what, the Punic Wars, I suppose? You know, it's something that you have a vague recollection of from an ancient history class. And you're like, I feel like there was a general and he may have beat the Carthaginians and then he sowed salt in their fields. That wasn't nice. And wasn't there a Carthage guy who like rode elephants over the Alps? Like that was pretty cool. Yeah. So Carthage is a big deal and it continues to be a big deal after it is destroyed, even after it is destroyed uh, by the Romans. And so we're like, he's coming into the big city and it's just for him an occasion of further temptation. <laughs> So this is a common theme in literature. Like you, you come from a less significant city, you go to a more significant city and you're like, oh my gosh, there are so many more ways to sin here. It's like, I grew up in a little town. Things that you could do on a Friday night included bowling and hanging out with your parents. And in order to bowl, you actually had to leave the town. So I hung out with my parents a lot and that was great, you know? And then let's see, I went to the bustling metropolis of Steubenville and then I could also go to Taco Bell and McDonald's. Well, St. Augustine is going to a place where there are even more options. And obviously he needs little provocation to have his lust fanned into flame. And that is certainly what is happening here. Yeah, it's uh, it's like, you know, moving moving to the Big Apple to try and make it. And then you're like, whoa, <laughs> that's a lot. I didn't grow up in such a small town as you, but I also had similar similar experiences of never really moving. I mean, we lived in Washington, D.C., but like as religious, so it's a yeah. whole different experience there. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> back to St. Augustine. So he has this in these in these chapters, St. Augustine has a sort of confession buried in the confessions. And, and as Father Gregory was saying that in the big city of Carthage, there are a lot of things to sort of fan the flames, the fires of lust, the fomes, the sort of embers, and that happens. And St. Augustine has this sort of confession of, you know, he's falling in love simply to fall in love without kind of reference to sort of this or that there's just like 
desire and the satisfying or the satiation of of desire because he can fulfill his desires whether that be from experiencing like shows and social sort of things or his lust or educational and and intellectual there's just so much to be taken in and saint augustine's sort of discernment of what is worth giving his heart to is totally out the window he's just kind of like taking it all in. So it begs for us the question, uh, as St. Augustine's even kind of reflecting on it, of, of, you know, sort of what do we fill our hearts with? What do we guard our hearts against? Uh, I don't know if you have thoughts about St. Augustine or more broadly speaking, but it's kind of there, I guess, for the taking. Yeah. I, I Some of the images that he uses in this first chapter of book three are very potent. They're very evocative. Like he'll talk about himself as covered with sores and brushing up against things just to feel them scraped. Like everyone's had whatever, some experience that's comparable, you know, like in the physical world where you'll have um, like poison ivy or something like that, or you'll just have been, you know, bitten by a mosquito or, you know, like you have a freshly formed scab and that's whatever it is. Like you just want to scratch, you want to pick, you want to just, uh, you know, experience some momentary relief, even though you know that in the long run you are effectively punishing yourself. And I think that's a good image for, you know, inordinate love or ill-trained love that we know that it's going to, in the long term, be terrible. But in the short term, all we can think of is it. I read this book by Professor Christopher Kayser, who teaches at uh, Loyola Marymount University called The Gospel of Happiness. And he was introducing some principles from positive psychology to kind of like help in our living of the moral life. And one thing he said is that temptations, they usually expire. They usually don't last that long. But while they are upon us, they're very urgent, right? They're very intense and they're very clamorous. Like it's not like, oh, you might consider, you know, indulging your lust if, if you're into that kind of thing. It's like, no, if you don't indulge your lust, you're going to die. You know, and it's like that screaming in your ears for 10 straight minutes. But he says, you know, it will pass. It's proven, you know, psychologically speaking, emotionally speaking, it will pass. But we need to be able to reassure ourselves of that. To do so, you need to have a really good distraction or a really good companion. And at this point, Augustine has neither because he doesn't really have anything else that attracts him with the same vehemence, and he doesn't yet have the Lord in the way that he will after his conversion. So it's a tough situation. Yeah, that we can't, when we think about temptation, even when, as you're just describing, looking at St. Augustine's life, we can't pretend that that it's just like an easy fix. I think we all have that experience that oh, we'll just say no, because as you were describing, there's an intensity to it. And as St. Augustine is describing in this sort of unattractive kind of way of just needing to like, of the sores and needing to be fix them or to have them satiated or whatever. Yeah. If, if it's not as if we can just say, ah, no, I'm not going to give in to this temptation of loss when everything is screaming to give into it. You know, if there isn't the companionship, if there isn't the seedbed of virtue or the turn to grace or all of that. And as you said, he's kind of alone in that. And we see too how this drives St. Augustine to attempt to fill his heart and his desires again and again, because he's just trying to fill himself. And there's a momentary satisfaction, but it's a fleeting one. So but it kind of takes a turn in a way, or uh, is it an occasion for him to seek out a new a new companion we could talk about? Not one that necessarily builds in virtue right away, but one that he begins to read, and that's, that's Cicero. So he begins to read Cicero, who is classically thought and understood to be one of the great Latin orators and writers um, whose works are still studied 
today. I remember in high school, in our Latin class in high school, one year. So we had two years of Latin, of like grammar and that. And then the third year, we read Cicero and translated Cicero. And the fourth year was Virgil. So Cicero is still kind of the kind of Latin guy. And St. Augustine picks him up and it moves St. Augustine's thought um, on things. So you want to say a little bit about that, Father Gregory? Yeah, I think that... um Again, many of you listeners will have had experiences of things where the nobility of a certain encounter will kind of rouse you from a slumber. And it might be an encounter with an author or with a particular form of art or, you know, whatever else. I think that like, yeah, I had a similar experience when reading G.K. Chesterton just to see the way that he used the English language, even though it's of a, a far less refined or like educated sort than is the Latin of Cicero. It, it kind of like opened my eyes to the fact that the language could be used with such subtlety and dexterity to describe experiences or to describe realities with a kind of accuracy and precision which caused you almost to catch your breath at their penetrating or at their kind of like incisive quality. And I think that, um, yeah, we, we take those occasions as kind of little conversion moments in the secular or mundane sense of conversion as the call of the truth or the call of the good or the call of beauty kind of brings us from our present state into something richer, profounder. And so for, for St. Augustine, this is, this is something like that, where it's one of the stages along the way. And we've talked about this already, that, that he's taking steps from, you know, we talked about the step towards Manichaeanism and the step towards Neoplatonism or this particular kind of philosophy, which purifies him of certain materialistic notions and eventually, obviously, the, the step to Christianity, to Christ. And so there's a kind of progressive nature to our maturation as human beings, which you see illustrated in the life of St. Augustine, but it also maps to our own experience. And I think it's an occasion for us too to reflect on, you know, the ways in which we've been invited further up and further in to our human reality so that we can experience it uh, with greater sensitivity and with greater openness. Yeah, St. Augustine, in reflecting on the effect that Cicero had on him or the way by which Cicero's writings moved, he talks about he talks about it as we've heard. And, you know, remember he says that he was, he's drawn now to wisdom and he says, not just this or that philosophical school, but wisdom itself. But then he has whatever it might be. So, you know, when we think of wisdom in the Christian tradition, our mind should turn to Christ, who is, who is the personification of wisdom, who is the word, who is truth himself. And, and there's an openness now, as Father Gregory was describing in St. Augustine's life, to wisdom, capital W, capital T, truth. Um, but he's still not yet there, you know, whatever it might be. So it, I think it's, it's important to see this movement as, yeah, one of those signposts or stepping stones in St. Augustine's life toward Christ and toward conversion, but we're not yet there. You know, he he's still, we, we still have to get through a bit of time before it happens, but we can see God's sort of handiwork in St. Augustine using Cicero and kind of pricking a desire or opening his mind, his heart for a desire for wisdom and truth that had been there in ways before, but we can see it maturing and growing and expanding. Yeah, yet again, not there perfectly, but moving in that direction. And I think as St. Augustine, I, I would imagine as he's writing these chapters and these pages of his confessions is, is recognizing that in the same way that he's kind of moving along more closely and closely. And I would imagine for for us, myself and Father Gregory, for you all listening, we can also look back in our lives and see those kind of moments when something, some occasion or occurrence has, has prompted us along in our in our journey to Christ. So this is kind of one of those for St. Augustine as he enters into this big city of of Carthage and all its adventures. So 
I think that's where we'll leave it for today. Um, and we'll pick up with Augustine and Carthage next time. So in the meantime, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics.